0: hey guys and happy monday i'm so honored to be sharing this episode with you all i think it's um it's really important to uh hear stories from people who have been through such traumatic experiences, but really turned that pain and that difficulty into something powerful and something meaningful. And that is exactly what uh, my guest, Vanessa, has done. She is such a badass. I'm so grateful to my colleague who uh, told me about her and told me about her story. And I truly think that everyone listening will be just absolutely in awe of the of her story and just everything she's done um so definitely take a listen uh just you know keep in mind that if you are or um have been in a relationship that's um not healthy or toxic or you know if you know that you were in a relationship with a narcissist some of these topics may be triggering Um, but also I think it's important to listen uh, if you feel comfortable because Vanessa points out a lot of signs to look out for to make sure that you are not, um, that you can, you know, be aware of the the person you're dating and uh, make sure that you're, you know, you don't fall trap to narcissistic tendencies. So uh, that's just a little background about the episode and I can't wait for you all to listen and tell me what you think. Um, but before I jump in, I wanted to quickly give, um, shout out to some of my sponsors one being sakara i haven't talked about sakara in a in quite a while but um i know for myself i am very lazy and i do not like to cook for myself um my friends would attest to that and especially during the winter months i'm just cold and i don't really want like to cook after work when it's dark out and i'm just lazy Um, So Saqqara has just been such a huge blessing for me because the food is delicious. It is nutritious and healthy and filling, um, which is important for me. And uh, it is all whole food ingredients. So um, and it's everything's pre-made. So I don't have to do anything except open my door and put everything in the fridge and then take it out when I'm hungry. Um, And if you all, you know, are just busy with day to day life and want to. Get started with Zakara, you can get 25% off your first order by using my discount code, which is huge. Um, So if you go to Zakara.com and, you know, order one of, uh, whether it's one of the meal plans or just some of their supplements, I personally love their probiotics, you can use the code XOZOE or XOZOE to get 25% off your first order. Um, so definitely check them out. And then another quick plug I wanted to give was to my friend, Madison Eshelman, who uh, runs a coaching practice called Grief and Groundworks for those who are, whether it's going through, you know, a loss of someone or, you know, the loss of yourself, which uh, can happen in traumatic situations. She's amazing. Um, and her her coaching practice is truly remarkable. She's another person I truly admire and um, has a really, you know, showing what it's like to turn pain into purpose. So definitely check her out by going to griefandgroundwork.com. She also has an Instagram, so you can shoot her over a message there. So without further ado, here is Vanessa. I hope you all enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace and the City. Today, I am so excited and really honored to be here with Vanessa Riser, who is a licensed clinical social worker specializing in narcissistic abuse. Vanessa, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Solace and the City. I'm just so incredibly excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So, If you don't mind um, just telling me a little bit about yourself, where are you from, where'd you grow up, how old are you, what's your story? Um,
1: So I grew up in Rockland County, New York. Um, My parents were from Queens. Um, I uh, live in the same county that I grew up in. I raised my son here. I've owned this house for 21 years. I started my practice last year. Um, only got my master's from USc at 42 years old so a very late kind of um, experience which only really translates into the fact that I just really love what I do um, because mm-hmm. I really chose it in a lot of ways um and I specialize in narcissistic abuse so um you know if you're dealing with some of these more um, malignant behaviors where somebody is, on a spectrum of psychopathy, then you might find yourself um, in my office.
0: Definitely. Wow, it's it's really cool that you you know pursued that master's like once you um, you know became more and more interested. So that kind of leads me to my next question of like, how and when did you become interested in psychology, and you know was it something you you. Th- saw yourself doing professionally when you were younger? Or was it, you know, did certain life events lead you to becoming a therapist?
1: I was actually in undergrad and I had a professor who I asked for, um, some kind of referral and she, she was like, no, I don't really know you. And she was kind of not so kind. And she started to talk to me about what I wanted to do with, um, you know, the rest of my life. And, as I am like piss and vinegar, I was like, well, I really want to get into poly- politics because I was a poli-sci undergrad. And um, she was kind of guiding me actually. It ended up being a great um, pivotal moment for me because I was talking to her about politics and campaigns and things like this. And um, I quickly realized that if I were to go into politics, that I would actually have to be quiet about my beliefs, which is really counterintuitive. But yeah. Um, so, and I wasn't going to go into law. So, she said you should be a social worker. And I was like, "Oh, so why?" And she was like, "Because there's just a variety of different hats that you'll be able to wear. So you can kind of still be that piss of vinegar and you can advocate and you can push." So, when I went to USC, my focus was very macro. It was community organizing, and that was my passion. And then I quickly figured out I had to make money. So I started the clinical piece and then, um, I fell in love with that also. So everything about social work, it works for me. So it's just my mission.
0: Yeah. That's, that's so interesting too. Cause that, that was my next question. was like how you decided to pursue an LCSW as opposed to an LMHC, um, for those listening, like a licensed clinical social worker, as opposed to a licensed mental health counselor. Um, and I made a similar you know, choice. I was applying to grad schools and I didn't know whether to apply to social work grad schools or um, just you know, becoming a mental health counselor. But I think just the variety of, like the breadth of different opportunities that social work presents and also just the type of people who go there um, are really interested in like saving the world and, and making a difference. So that's why I, I personally leaned to um, social work and will be going there next fall. So Yay. It's cool to hear that. Yeah. We can, we, we can talk more about that after because I, I saw you um, used to do supervisions and I was like, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's the greatest. It's the greatest job ever. So I think recently, like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I feel like the topic of narcissism has, has been in the limelight so to speak a little bit more there's been you know shows like um, what's that one show the the undoing with Nicole Kidman and uh, Hugh Grant and just people have been talking about it more um, and the term I think has been thrown around a little colloquially, uh, colloquially? I probably butchered that word um, so I was wondering if you could speak to what narcissism is from a clinical perspective Sure. So um, while I understand what you're saying, I think
1: that there's a few different variables. I do think that narcissists are more prevalent than we realize um, as well as sociopaths. I think the data now is something like one out of 26 people is a sociopath. So that is, that's a terrifying, that's exactly right. So um, I don't know. I feel like narcissists don't want us to talk about it and certainly patriarchal sort of um, you know, capitalistic and individualistic societies are like, shh, sit down little girl. We don't want everyone to know that there's evil amongst us and the rest so that they can sort of perpetuate their bad behaviors. So I don't know. I think that it's more prevalent than we realize that's a, and B also the words that we use to describe, um, what is a level of psychopathy, doesn't really work for me because narcissist or narcissism sounds almost in some ways kind of sexy like oh you like to take selfies we sort of like don't really understand that that has nothing to do with what this is so while they like attention um i would not even consider that to be a bigger a big part of it really i think what the ground zero for the narcissist is this lack of empathy and When you think about empathy, you think about, um, you know, the species wouldn't exist without it, right? So when the the crying baby begins to um, get upset, the reason why we exist is because the primary caregiver says to themselves, hopefully, oh, little baby, don't cry, I will soothe you, you know? So that's how we sort of exist is that we have empathy and we kind of, you know, carry it out. So we have the lack of empathy, We have the love bombing. So that's this um, whirlwind um, kind of experience, not necessarily as bad with the narcissistic parent, but it sort of just manifests and represents itself in different ways. Future faking, Um, narcissists generally have a mask. So they sort of behave very superficially. They are liars, gaslighters, addicts, because by definition, they are addicted to attention. So while you know, we hear addicts, you're thinking it, ne- it doesn't necessarily mean it's you know drugs or alcohol or something else, gambling, video games, work, um, porn, all of this. Um, they're manipulative, um, insecure, controlling. Um, they tend to have they tend to cheat because they need a constant supply. So they have these peripheral supplies, supplemental supplies. But generally, the, the no empathy is sort of ground zero.
0: Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think, um, I think that's something that's hard to grasp for most people because, or maybe not most, one out of 26 is a lot. Um, but you know, (laughs) some people, I'm assuming people tuning into this podcast or in the mental health field, it's kind of hard to grasp because of, um, our strong, you know, ways of, um, empathizing with others and the, the pain we feel when others are hurting. So it's kind of hard to think of the fact that someone can really just not even feel a remote inkling of pain or, or sadness for someone in who's in, um, who's struggling. Yeah. I remember when, um, my, when I was trying
1: to describe this to my son in terms of like, you know, this is what happened and this is real. And I remember he was like having a hard time processing it. And I said to him, I said, you know, here's the good news. You don't get it which means you're not broken. And I'm so glad that you don't get it. And I said, you know, the bad news is you don't get it because I don't want you to be victimized. And so, yeah, it's very hard to process.
0: Definitely. So I know for me personally, I, you know, dove into the mental health field um, partially for, for lack of a better word, selfish reasons, because, you know, I wanted to learn more about some of the things that I've experienced. So, Um, you know, was there a part of your life or multiple parts of your life where you experienced narcissistic abuse?
1: Yes. I had um, a relationship with um, a narcissist and it was rather traumatic in terms of trying to sort of extricate myself from that environment.
0: And when you were in that relationship, did you know he was a narcissist or were there any red flags or did you just think or did, did you fall into, you know, the love bombing and the gaslighting and, um, you know, turn against yourself in a way?
1: Yeah, I didn't know. I knew something was wrong. Right. I knew it was like something is off and the red flags did show up rather early, Um, but I would make excuses. And as a healer or a fixer or a codependent or a people pleaser, I just thought, you know, we'll just, you know work on it kind of thing, but there is no data that I can find um, where they change. Freud himself famously walked away from treating narcissists and psychopaths because they don't have insight. They don't tend to look within, it's everyone else's fault. Um, And so it makes it really hard. We would measure change in millimeters versus miles as it relates to this personality disorder. Um, it doesn't, you know. There's not a lot of data that we have that they change.
0: Yeah, I actually I remember speaking with um, uh, Dr. Rachel Bernstein. She focuses on on cults, and she just told this story about um, a narcissist who came into her office once and one one time only. Um, but he said that the way he de- the way he decide whether or not a girl was like he, that he'd want to date someone is on the first date with a girl he would kind of shove her on the sidewalk and see if she was like what the fuck why did you just shove me or if she was like oh I'm sorry and if it was the latter then he knew he could manipulate her and I thought that was just horrifying.
1: Yeah isn't that scary to think that um you could have, have like a very subtle hair pull or a pinch or something and it's like just enough to set off an alarm or something and then they they might use that as an opportunity to say that you're crazy like how could their, you know there here's the gaslighting starting already right like so mm-hmm. It is, it, there's these little, and that's what makes it so insidious is that, you know, I would much prefer, believe it or not, something to cold clock me because when I speak to my clients that are um, physically assaulted, they tell me that I would prefer that over this mental game. And so, yeah, that's what makes it so disturbing. You know, it's like those little things that they might whisper in your ear or, so that they get a reaction out of you. And then you're, you know, on display in front of others. It's very, very tricky. Um, there and, and it's maniacal in some ways.
0: Yeah, definitely. In hindsight, like looking back, what are some of those little behaviors, um, that people can look out for in their partner if they're feeling unsafe in a relationship or not quite sure if, you know, it is their fault, like it is their problem or it's in their head or if it is the result of the partner. And um, yeah, like what are some, you know, asides from just like gaslighting, what are some minor things to look out for? Well, in that gaslighting
1: game, they will do things like lie. So um, I have a bracelet that I wear here. It says, live your truth. And I think it's really important for you to feel confident in your truth. If you know the truth, um, when someone says to you, like, I didn't say that. And you're wondering if you're crazy, you're not, (laughs) you're not, they said it, you heard it. Um, and that's that. So, I mean, you have to kind of really stay rooted and firm in your truth. Um, no matter what. We're not, I mean, unless you have a diagnosis of dementia um, or some, you know, amnesia, you heard it and it was said, and that's your truth. So you kind of have to be really careful because they will, those little things um, are, it's a little bit of a slippery slope. So if you start to believe that, you know, you misheard something you know, then, you know, they're gonna, they're picking up on that. They're watching that very closely and they know that they can do that again and again and again. to so the extent that you would be, um, totally enveloped in a, a false reality.
0: Yeah. Kind of going, you know, so let's say I notice these signs continuously. If I were your client and I was like telling you this, how would you advise me to, to get out of that relationship?
1: Well, the first thing is we always talk about safety planning. So having a safety bag, maybe hiding your prized possessions, photographs, passports, money, documents at a friend's house or a family member's house um, and start to set some groundwork for transitioning. They're, like, again, they don't change there's no um, reason to believe that they would also be able to end a relationship in a healthy way. Generally, there's a lot of histrionics, a lot of judicial madness. So, you really want to kind of get ready financially. Um, you want to also begin to record conversations. I have a camera on me in my house that records me all the time, not because um of anything other than I will be accused of something, right? So I don't have cameras necessarily looking to protect me from an assault, even though I have those also. I also have to um, show where I am at all times so that I'm not, you know, being accused of being. So you have to start to think almost like a narcissist. you have to be really careful. there's a game involved, you have to think about, how to protect yourself, you know, how to chronicle your whereabouts, et cetera. So you have to, um, think, um, carefully
0: and ahead. Wow. That's, that's a lot. I mean, to think about, I think, it, you know, it's so sad because people get into relationships, not thinking, you know, rarely thinking that they'd have to get cameras to protect them and to, confirm that they're not lying about things um, and so that must be a lot for you know your clients to take in and and uh, process do you I guess on let's say the the not necessarily the flip side but I think oftentimes in relationships that aren't healthy um, whether it's with a narcissistic partner or um, maybe even just like a toxic relationship um, people will be like the victim would be so just in love and ultimately kind of too in too deep to hear any advice from others, like from the outside perspective. Let's say like, me as a friend, seeing a friend struggling with their partner, but not necessarily knowing how to tell them, listen, you're your partner is crazy and, and get out and because you know, then the the person could become defensive or start defending their partner. What advice would you give to a friend of someone who is in that narcissistic relationship? I
1: love this question because what I find is the most important for um, so many of my clients is they want to be believed. They don't feel believed. Um, If you When I was working in the Bronx, I worked at a um, outpatient mental health clinic, and you know, people who were victims of rape, assaults, it could be from a um, a parent, it could have been from the foster care parent. They're not looking necessarily at the abuser; they're looking at people that are there to protect them, right? So, like, where's the you know, I was abused by my um, foster parent. Where is the system to protect me? You know, they're sort of looking around. So. What are they saying in that moment? They're saying, I need to be believed. Um, I need to be seen. I need to be protected. And so, um, you know, people need to be believed, particularly, and this is really interesting because I study this about my own personal experiences. If you're like me and you're like a tough broad and you're like really outgoing you don't fit the profile of someone that's going to be victimized so that I have a hard time because people like, Oh, she must've done something to him. Cause look at her, you know, she's all mouthy and she's, you know, she's not afraid to No, girl. I was like on the balls of my ass after this experience. Like it was really hard on my tough, you know, personality. It was. So I think it's interesting for that reason as well because i don't i don't feel believed a lot because of that so i think you know we see some of this in hollywood we see some really strong women we see some really fierce characters get really walloped so i think the 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 real um you know fundamental piece there is that people want to be believed so i believe if i hear something it it's it's just fact i don't spend too much time Um, Question thinking about it. Yeah,
0: that's such a good point. I didn't even really fully think of is. Yeah, because we oftentimes characterize victims in our head as like these soft, demure, innocent, you know, young women like who. um, Couldn't stand up for themselves, etc. And we rarely think about the fact that, you know, you can have a strong personality but also be an empath and also be you know be easily targeted by a narcissist by being an empath. And you know, I think of myself and'm I'm, I'm really outgoing and I, I'm fun, but if I'm in a relationship I'm, I'm that's a different side of me. And so that's such an interesting point. It, it almost reminds me of um, the undoing because Nicole Kidman's character is, you know, she's a psychiatrist or a psycho psychologist or whatever she is and. Um, the show and yet she wasn't able to even see the signs in her her um, husband. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's such an interesting point. I, I guess what are some of the, you know long term side effects um, of a narcissistic relationship? whether it's one you know, you the one you went through or your um, clients, like what are some of those? or things they have to deal with and how can they process them? So generally, um, I will assess for
1: PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder, because um, while, again, we can't see the wounds, there um, is a link. There's data now that tells us that the trauma bond that is created by the ups and downs the highs and lows or that cycle of abuse the love bombing and devaluing stage um is likened to a drug addiction because what happens is when you're having this like high um and they remove the love bombing stage um or they devalue or they're passive aggressive, it creates this up down and we don't do well with that. So in dialectical behavioral therapy, we need to really all be at baseline. This is like, and mostly we're kind of, you know, flitting about and and going up and down a little bit, but they take you on these like ups, downs, up, and it creates this trauma bond. So uh, the data says that it's like being addicted to a drug. You want them to fix it again. And when I left my, experience, I shook for about nine days because it was like, I was waiting for like a fix because you know, the serotonin and, and the rest is kind of elevated. Um, and it was very, very, very troubling for me. And so when we understand the trauma that happens, we try to, I'm trauma certified. So we try to work on, um, if there's any panic, we'll work on um, getting grounded. So using dialectical behavioral therapy, we work, I do pepper in quite a bit of life coaching. I think the narcissist is allergic to power. So we, I try to get my clients into a position of power. So I'm almost like injecting them with like heavy CBT, like, let's talk about why you're so dope and they're so disgusting. And like, So we sort of shift the, you know, the dynamic from them being in a position of power, we'll create a list of the bad things that they've done, and we'll create a list of things that we love about ourselves, and we'll kind of, you know, get away from that. But there's also a lot of reparenting, we have to go back and dig to see how did we get into the position where there weren't a lot of boundaries. Um, And then with trauma, you know, the, the newest data is to sort of like, be kind. So like, you know, the, the, the beautiful music, the, the warm soup, the weighted blanket, we want to kind of like get into like heavy soothing, almost the way you might treat a friend who's sick. So we spend a lot of time just being, you know, practicing a lot of self-love.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I'm actually currently reading a uh, body keeps the score. Like, so all about trauma and how then it affects, you know, not only your, um, brain, but literally your body and just, and it's been so fascinating. I know it's like a older book, but I'm finally getting myself to read it. And it's, yeah, like it can literally cause like long-term ailments and pain. And so being able to address those as soon as possible, I imagine would be most beneficial.
1: Yeah, for sure. We hear a lot about autoimmune diseases, hair loss, um, all kinds of residuals. Trauma is um, important to pay attention to. Most of us have it too. Sometimes when a client comes into session, even if they're not narcissistically abused and I start to assess for trauma, at first they're like, "Uh, no, I didn't have any trauma. And then we start to dig and I'm like, oh, there it is. (laughs) You know what I mean? Most of us have something going on.
0: Yeah. So now I want to talk about the incredible thing you did last year, which is just so badass. I'm going to read um, a little bit from a people article. Um, so a woman, which is you, is setting out to raise awareness for narcissistic domestic abuse by running nearly 300 miles across New York and she'll be doing it all in a wedding dress. So I want to hear all about this. How did you come up with this idea? How did you come up with the idea to wear a wedding dress? Um, have you always been a runner? Like <laughs> how did you how did you do that? So I
1: am a two-time Ironman. So I am an athlete. Um, I've done a bunch of uh, marathons, Boston, New York, ultra marathon. um, And I was on a run and I thought to myself, how can I, you know, there's that macro um, side of me. How can I shine a light on this? How can I shine a light on this? And I thought, okay, this might work because it'll get attention. You know, here's this therapist and she's cute enough and she's running the entire state of New York. So I started to plan it out and I was looking at the course and I was making phone calls to my fellow athletes. Do you think I can do this? Hell yes, you can do this, Vanessa. Let's get to training. And they started scheduling me. Um, And then the wedding dress, the variable of the wedding dress is something that I think makes sense because the narcissist tends to exploit the wedding. So they might exploit a variety of different things, but in a love affair, that's a big thing for a lot of people is, you know, this wedding, this wedding, this wedding, or this house, this house, this house. So I thought let's do it that way. Um, I started in Oswego, New York, and I finished in Manhattan. It was 285 miles. Um, I think it was 12 days, but quite honestly, it probably could have done it in 10 (laughs) Um, and it was really transformative, probably one of, um, the greatest experiences for me in my entire life. Um, just because I was doing my own healing, but I was feeling validated in the support I was getting, you know, and I really would like to run across the nation. I need a sponsor. But, um, I may try to run across New Jersey this year cause I have a couple of different projects. So Jersey is kind of shorter. I probably could do it in about two days just cause I'd do it the short way. Um, but yeah, it was, it was tremendous. I highly recommend 10 out of 10.
0: <laughs> I don't know if I could, it would take me probably around like four months, but it's <laughs> pretty cool. You're running like a marathon a day. <laughs>
1: yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was, um, it was a lot of fun. I had great weather. I had great support. Um, my team was amazing. And uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, the day after I started the day after my son graduated college from university at Buffalo. Um, so it was a big kind of high. I was riding. I was, it was really helpful for, I think for myself and for a lot of people who were like, Oh my God, I'm not crazy. You know, this is a real thing.
0: Did I know I've spoken with some people um, and like I'm a runner. I, I, I love running. I think it's it's like my meditation because I'm so type A. I, it's really hard for me to sit down and meditate. So I just put myself through pain and that seems to do the job. Given that you had, you know, all of that time to think, did you have any like realizations or was there anything, you know, from that experience that really sticks out the most in terms of being transformative? yeah, um
1: it's funny. I felt that I had turned a corner. Um, and I still sometimes feel I'm still turning corners. It's a very long process to sort of undo like the swirling or the, you know the the faulty wiring that sort of happens. But I think for me, quite honestly, there was this guy that I was talking to at the time. And he was like from some dating app. And I realized in, in those moments as I was running that I wasn't broken. Like I was like, Oh, I kind of, kind of like see that I'm still, you know, like had a little mojo. I was kind of feeling myself and it was like, it sounds crazy, but I was like, okay. So, you know, she's still got a little fire left in her yet. And it was like, really nice to feel that alive again. Cause it was, you know, with COVID, right. It was really, really hard. The timing of when I left was March of 2020. So, um, it was a long and ugly, weird time in the first place for, for everyone. Um, wow. and then you compound it with that thing. So it was almost like, um, the light turned on or something. I just was beginning to feel like myself again.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And, I have no doubt I'll see you, like, running across the country soon. <laughs> not, I, I would maybe, love- not, yeah. maybe not in person. Or you could do Texas. That's where I am. That's a pretty big state. <laughs> sure, no problem. How many miles would girl? That's a lot. Yeah, just not in the summer because it'd be, like, yeah. 110 degrees. I um, did Iron
1: Man Texas, actually, and it was, like, 93 degrees. It was so hot.
0: You are a superhuman. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so I always kind of wrap up with just – some questions that are somewhat unrelated to the podcast and somewhat related. The first one may be obvious, but what is one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? Um, I would
1: say probably the death of my father. When I was 18, I really loved him. And I remember after he left, I just had the sense that he would, I wanted him to be proud. So I spent a lot of my energy um, kind of trying to make that happen. So I think I, I, in some ways it was a wake up for me. I, I think I needed him to be proud and I, I tried to
0: kind of make him proud. So my dad passing away, probably. I think he would definitely be proud. And run across run across freaking New know. York. <laughs> Who knew okay. you were gonna get me emotional today? Okay, okay, girl. Do you believe everything happens for a reason? I kinda do now. I kind of feel like after you go through this
1: experience, it's like going through a portal. And now I feel like the universe is winking at me in different ways. So um I wasn't particularly spiritual before and now I'm having almost like these like almost corny little god winks along the way so uh yeah.
0: Yeah, I it's it's such a like a, a question that gets such a dichotomy of responses, you know, some people are like absolutely not, some people are all in and I kind of like to think that it does that everything does happen for a reason and You know, like if you wouldn't have run across the state of New York if, you know, something terrible hadn't have happened, but it like empowered you and probably brought you out, made you stronger. So um, I'm kind of with you on that. Do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by?
1: I do. It's on my business card, though, so I'm going to read this. The greatest good you can do for another is not just share your riches, but reveal to them their own. This is Benjamin. And I think it's Disraeli. So as a social worker, um, you don't want to just share your knowledge. You want to empower people to sort of have their own um, understanding of their value, etc. So, you know, I think that's a really important thing. Um, Thing that I live by.
0: I love that. It kind of goes back to the point you made about you know in how to get h- how to work with people who are getting out of a narcissistic relationship and telling them like how badass they are and and lifting them up so that they can see themselves above this abuser. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, what do you love most about yourself? I'm strong. In many ways. <laughs> Yeah, I'm strong. I
1: do this with uh, my clients all the time in terms of CBT. So cognitive behavioral therapy, we want to really develop like a list of things that people love about themselves. Um, I think I'm funny. I think I'm smart. I think I'm kind of (laughs) cute, but I think it's important for people to develop in some ways, if you're an empath to develop, um, uh, some characteristics and positive attributes that you love about yourself almost narcissistically. So they can't, um, they can't really be contingent upon how someone else receives you. So less about this generous caring, because while that's wonderful, oftentimes people who um, don't have a real solid sense of self, they sort of spend too much energy with the people pleasing part. So you kind yeah. of really you want to really get into like self-love.
0: That's so interesting. Cause yeah, I do bring on a lot of gas and even sometimes I'm, you know guilty of saying this or like what do I love most about myself and I say you know uh, that I'm empathetic or that I, I I'm caring and yeah at the end of the day that that's putting myself in how I help others or like de- deriving my my value out of like how others perceive me or how I help others but rather than saying so- something that is uniquely me or um, is not contingent upon a uh, not a uh, Right. contingent upon another person that's right i have to ask when is your birthday july 2nd is that a cancer yep awesome i i just am like kind of into astrology but i, I i'm always curious mm-hmm. um well vanessa thank you so much for taking the time to come on this podcast i cannot tell you how, how awesome i think you are I guess where can everyone first of all follow you? Um, follow your future runs, keep up with everything you're doing, and check out, you know, teletherapist, um, plug everything. So yeah, you can
1: find me at tellatherapist.net. Um, I do have a nonprofit, which is teletherapist.org where we will connect you with a NARC savvy clinician in your respective state. Um, and on Instagram, I think I'm at Vanessa riser LCSW. Um, and that's basically it. You know that if you need any um, services, um, I'm licensed in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Florida.
0: Awesome. And do you have any resources, um, that you would recommend people checking out if they want to learn a little bit more about narcissistic abuse, um, any particular, you know, uh, other organizations that you like? Um, obviously Dr. Romney,
1: um, Sam Vaknin is a diagnosed narcissist. He has a bunch of stuff on YouTube that I think is particularly helpful because he talks about how the narcissist sees you. Um, Debbie Mirza M I R Z a wrote a book called the covert passive aggressive narcissist. That was really helpful for me when I was trying to identify, um, the kind of relationship that I was in. So those are two of my favorites.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again. And bye everyone. Thank you.